welcoming Mark Pascal on Crypto Girls. He is the founder of the Wellbeing Protocol, which is probably New Zealand's first charity DAO that is relatively functional. It's not quite a DAO yet, but it's going to get to that stage. So I'm excited to hear one of the first like real use cases of blockchain that I think a lot of people will be interested in. I found out about the wellbeing protocol because I am Mia Gucci from the Ethereum Foundation, donated some money towards it and towards some Maori community. And so having that connection from Japan to New Zealand and potentially worldwide, you know, worldwide people donating money to New Zealand local communities is really exciting. So I wanted to interview Mark Pascal because I want to hear more about Wellbeing Protocol and its stages and what it like its goals are and things like that. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Would you be able to tell us what is your role at the Wellbeing Protocol and what your background is? Yeah, i uh, start with my background. I, I'm a technologist by trade, so I've been uh, started out as a software developer and then spent many years running a software company and then yeah about seven or eight years ago switched into the blockchain world and yeah so essentially i ran a software uh, a blockchain software company so we were doing smart contract auditing and yeah working mostly in the ethereum space so about three years ago i kind of had this this vision that i wanted to do something a bit different and sold my company and embarked on this this project which is now called the Wellbeing protocol basically with this vision that we could use decentralization technology to uh, for social good i was seeing in all my time in in the sort of web3 world blockchain world i was seeing some really some amazing innovations some really cool people but a lot of it actually wasn't helping real people uh, on the ground a lot of it was just making rich people richer and and it was this lack of yeah yeah diversity in all the teams i was working in and yeah, so kind of changed tack and started the Wellbeing Protocol with this vision that we could use blockchain decentralization technology to do social good. And specifically, our focus became around uh, localism. How can, we use, how can we use decentralization technology to scale localism, to scale doing things at a local level? The sort of thing our great-grandparents would have done naturally, work together as a community to solve problems. The problem is that we as a society have moved away from doing things locally, we've become more centralized as computers have become bigger and governments have become more powerful and corporations have become you know, way too powerful. Everything is centralized and we've got this sort of global scale dis disintermediation. So all the middle men, middle people are being taken out of the equation and we're moving to very, very centralized systems. So, but, so we've lost this, this community. We've lost the ability to solve things locally. So really the wellbeing protocol was yeah this idea that we could somehow we didn't really quite know how this is three and a half years ago we started didn't really know quite how but this this idea that we could use this technology to scale localism and yeah so my role you know, i guess i was originally i was the founder and i wrote a white paper and yeah gradually picked up some, some other people along the way yeah we've pivoted a few times and i can talk about that a bit later if you want but we yeah still you know true to that to that mission statement so and the, at the moment i'm taking on a, a number of roles as you do in a, a small startup company essentially i'm doing a lot of the sort of technical architecture a lot of the business development fundraising yeah a whole lot of hats that i wear currently your background in software engineering have you always been a software developer like was that what you studied at university and you know how did uh, that 
Yeah, it actually was an I did a degree in acoustical engineering, sound engineering, and uh, also taught windsurfing for a little while and did, did some silly things like that. Yeah, so I kind of transitioned into software development from acoustics. So I started writing software for acoustic prediction solutions and yeah, and then found more opportunity in, in pure software. So I went, went down that route quite early in my career. Have you found that for people who want to get into software development and blockchain and things, how helpful have you found your software background in, in developing wellbeing protocol? I think it's important. I mean, I think this, the sort of the geeky, nerdy side of writing code is just one component of, of any project. The fact that we were ultimately a, a software solution. Yes, I think it's quite important to have somebody who knows that stuff as part of the team, but it's one of many roles. I mean, I've, I've now got a, a sort of a co-founder, Benjamin, and and we've got some other people supporting us. So we have very different skill sets and that's that's vital. And I'm really curious, what do you what will your role be once the wellbeing protocol reaches its decentralized level? Because in decentralized organizations, usually there should not really be a hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Essentially we are a centralized system now. Whenever you have a startup, when you have a few people, you know, they're by definition centralized. There's a few people making decisions. As we grow Yes, uh, we we want to exit the community. We want we want to give away the power to the to the communities that we're supporting, but that's that's a journey, and and we're seeing lots of experimentation on sort of best practice around how to do that well without things falling apart. Because you know sometimes decisions need you know it's best to make decisions through some sort of hierarchy. But essentially, what we're trying to do is to create a a path so that it's relatively easy to sort of flick the switch and and become a DAO when the timing is right. So we're sort of implementing sort of DAO-like practices as we go. And yeah, but we need to get to that, that critical mass, that critical size before we can and ultimately have more users, more and more developers. We need to be a bigger entity before we can make that switch. And as to my role, I mean, I think I, I love the idea of having, I'm a big fan of sociocracy and holacracy and teal. These are kind of methodologies that promote the idea that you have multiple hats, multiple roles in any project and you energize roles you know and you change that's quite it's much more of a fluid system so as, as opposed to a traditional hierarchical company which has quite well-defined roles and job descriptions and kpis and all that sort of stuff sociocracy holacracy those methodologies promote the idea of yeah much more fluid roles that can change and adapt in response to tensions these are external sort of stimuli or, or issues uh, so they change weekly and so you have this much more fluid system so you know i might have four roles uh i might do a bit of this someday and a bit of that someday but each role is has well-defined accountabilities and so you have this structure but it's much more fluid the other difference in a dao type structure is that you tend to sort of pull work as opposed to be given work so in a normal company your your boss essentially you know however it's framed but essentially your boss is telling you what to do and you report to them and they decide you know whether you get fired or not in more of a DAO, the, the DAOs i've been involved in it's more about saying hey here's the, the vision the mission for the uh, DAO. i have got these skills i would like to propose to the DAO that i can do this thing that will get us one step closer to that vision so i put a proposal through the DAO decides whether my proposal, and I say how much I'm going to charge and all those details. And if the, the DAO votes on it, and I might be a voting member of the DAO as well, uh, but the DAO votes on that proposal and it may or may not get accepted. So so it, it puts the more of the onus on the you know, on the person who wants to work to find that that thing that they're good at. Yeah. So, that, that's, so I may take multiple roles and do 
multiple things as as we grow. Yeah, I've I've seen one DAO like I've interacted with one DAO before, and it's been really interesting how um, people will, will like original founders or contributing people will basically pitch to the DAO what they want to do in the next six months or year, and the DAO either rejects that or accepts that. There was one guy who like kept getting rejected because no one could see previous work and he was trying to charge a lot of money for things they didn't really want i just found it fascinating like this DAO actually is working yeah it's certainly not perfect and i've seen it work so well sometimes and work really well in other times because the thing about a hierarchy you know which is what we're not used to from school through to companies through to government is a hierarchy is by definition there's less rungs on the ladder as you go up so you have to fight to get up up to get that pay rise to get that responsibility so it tends to favor more masculine qualities of, of aggression and fighting to get up and less feminine qualities like a, like cooperation so inherently a, a, a hierarchy is you know i would argue is not good for for, for equality uh, whereas the DAO and sociocracy and hypocrisy and teal, those sorts of concepts, you can start to experiment with much flatter, more collaborative uh, systems for incentivizing behavior uh, and incentivizing uh, people to work towards uh, the mission or the vision of the DAO. So I think it's, it's quite an exciting space. And, and we're going to see, well, we are seeing this Cambrian explosion of people trying new ways to organize themselves. Uh, and most are failing, but there's some some you know some some, some good examples of it where it's not and doing really well. Um, if anything, blockchain is such an interesting thought experiment, like it's brain exercise, and I feel like the DAO is a perfect example of that. Just experimenting with new structures and political structures and how that can work, and it's nothing like we've ever seen before. So who knows? It might it might work. Yeah, uh, I think it gives us this this green field platform to experiment with with new governance with new governance systems and that's the exciting bit and and so you know really if you think about a a government or a company or or it's just it's just a a group of people deciding to allocate resources money typically that's a treasury and it's a government system that's what a government does on a bigger scale that's what a corporation does so so now that DAOs can hold treasuries, well, they have since the beginning, they can hold you know real value in the form of crypto and crypto assets. And we can build really quite sophisticated governance voting mechanisms. So we've been playing a lot with quadratic voting and conviction voting. And uh, we can start to sort of explore quite different ways of, of how those groups of people make decisions and reputation-based voting, weighting, all that sort of stuff. So that's that's the the exciting bit, I think. I am actually like the more I talk about the wellbeing protocol, the more I'm excited because I've always imagined like New Zealand government. I think it would be good if not only MPs vote, but the people vote. And but currently, there's been no mechanism to do that. So having the wellbeing protocol um, as a first, I, I don't know, first use case, I guess, in New Zealand um, is is pretty exciting. Like, who knows what that might mean for New Zealand politics in 30 years. I think, I think what, what, what we're trying to do with the Wellbeing Protocol is to create a, uh, an alternative but complementary system. I mean, we're not trying to get rid of the New Zealand government. There's certain things that, that need to, to be controlled centrally. Uh, and But what we're saying is that there's a whole lot of stuff at that local level that perhaps isn't being decided locally. It's being decided by bureaucrats or or. or, or people who run charities or you know well-meaning people who are often outside the community they aren't 
as close to the problem. They don't, then yeah, and they're not as in, in touch with the community as they could be. So if we can use technology to give that those small groups of people at a local level, re- make it super easy for them to transparently make decisions and allocate resources. And it could just be 15 people who want to create a, a shared a community garden in their local area or 200 people at a local parents of kids at a local school who are worried about technology and mental health. If they actually want to do something about it and we convince a funder to put some money into their treasury, then we want to just create the mechanism so they can easily allocate those resources and solve those problems locally. But it's certainly the certain types of decisions that are best made by the council or best made by the government. But the whole other stuff that we think could be made by by local people. Can we talk about some of the pilot projects that Wellbeing Protocol is currently undertaking, so people can get a, an idea of you know what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, so so we we started as I said about three and a half years ago with this vision of using decentralization technology to to empower localism. Our first experiment was a thing called the Canon Canon's Coin Project, which was where we basically worked with a, a quite a poor community. A financially poor community uh, just north of Wellington in New Zealand, uh, and we we got some grant money to explore creating a local currency, so a local digital currency, which we built on a an Ethereum sidechain. So that's an interesting technology. So at the time, to to, to make sure uh, fees were low, but we essentially uh, got some money and we created this. We called it the Canon Coin, and we created a really simple to use digital wallet. And and we basically handed out fifty Canon coins to fifty people in the community as this, as this experiment, and we, we taught them how to use the wallet, and and we and we gave them the money. We said one Canon coin is worth one New Zealand dollar, and you can spend it in these places. We we teamed up with the uh, local fruit and veg co-op among other people, and we also said well, so we said good, but you can spend it at the, the fruit and veg co-op. You can buy these twelve Canon coin veggie baskets every week. Or you can uh, trade amongst yourselves, or you can donate it to a, a community fund in, in the middle on the app. It was all via a, a simple smartphone app, uh, so you can donate to the fund, and you can make decisions around where that that shared stuff goes. So it was a very small scale trial, and it was a lot of it was about exploring the use of the technology in that sort of community. So these were sort of people from all walks of life, older people, people who you know, hadn't used smartphones before. And so it was really uh, having a look at whether this could work, whether they would understand the concept of a, a digital currency. Anyway, so, so we were in that, that trial. This is sort of two or three, well, two and a half years ago now. It was a very sh- short, we went on for three months. We had limited funding, but we learned a whole lot. But what was really interesting, I guess one of the key lessons that we learned was that it's around trust, because we were, you know, at the time, a couple of white privileged males <laughs> coming into their community saying we had something that looks a bit like Bitcoin. There was a lot of distrust. You know, the, the people in that community, they didn't know us. They, We represented a system that hadn't done well for them. And so we kind of, even though we had good intentions, we, we, we came away thinking, well, we need to solve a, a meta problem around trust. How and how do we how do we create something that the, that the people who are using it actually trust? Because they're, they're not going to trust us or people like us. So then we went, went away and that's when we sort of pivoted slightly and we, we started looking at the governance problem. And that was where we sort of brought in the DAO concepts of, okay, well, we need to create an entity, a sort of a DAO-like entity at a local level that the people of the community actually govern. It's their DAO, not ours. They control it, they make decisions, and they allocate those resources. So we need to solve that problem first 
once we've solved that problem, then we can start building the tools like a local currency or a savings pool or a volunteer coordination tool or whatever. We can start to build the tools onto that, that governance system. So that's when we uh, essentially changed direction and started looking at sort of localized DAO structures and governance and voting systems. So quadratic voting, conviction voting. And we yeah, basically got some funding from the New Zealand government to work with a small Maori men's uh, health group. So just 15 of the guys in, in Lower Hutt near Wellington, who the health group, they, they came together every every week and they, and they support each other's health. But health in the sort of local cultural context and in, in New Zealand, I mean, in, in sort of Maori culture, they have this thing called Te Whara Tapafa, which is more of a holistic view of health, you know, and quite different from the sort of typical Western view of health. So we wanted them to apply their their framework to, to that problem. And so, yes, we got some money to work with this group and to actually build a bit of software and to run a trial. And that trial, that was kind of our second main tri trial uh, called the Tana Order Trial. And there's details on our website, wellbeingprotocol.org, where they were basically given, you know, a significant amount of money by the New Zealand government. And it was trickle fed into their their fund, their, their, their treasury of their DAO, essentially. And, and we built a, a system that made it very easy for them to come up with ideas, move them through to proposals and projects and get them funded. So it could be, you know, really small things like we want to fund a trip to the beach for the guys to celebrate something. Because uh, we think that'll be really good, good for our group. Um, we need some petrol money, or it could be like a bigger thing, like a like a new running machine or something. So, but essentially, it was up to them to decide where the money got spent, not not the government. And and it was all held together by this we call it constitution. So essentially, the DAO constitution. This is this set of rules that the community and the funder, in this case the government, agreed on. So that was written down and it's on the app and you can sort of read it. And so anybody who joined the community essentially had to say, I agree to that constitution, which put the boundaries of what the fund could be used for. And yes, yeah, so that was essentially our second trial, uh, the Tiny Order trial. And where the, and that started in May this well, last year, and that went really well. And on the back of that, we've been talking to a lot of people around what we've been doing, uh, both in New Zealand and in the UK. And yes, yeah, so we're running... Like, eight or nine more trials now across New Zealand, across the UK, uh, local councils, uh, uh, yeah, throughout New Zealand and, and, yeah, and philanthropic organizations, community organizations. So yeah, the momentum is really growing now. How did the guys like using, um, you know, the DAO, did they find it easy? Yeah, it, it, it was, it was a process. We, we worked with them closely. We had a bunch of workshops and, and, because they didn't essentially know it was a DAO for them. And, and it wasn't really a DAO in the true sense of the word. In the, it, it wasn't on chain. We, we, we focused on, on the front end, on the solving the sort of user experience. That was, you know, how do you make it super easy for these guys, uh, to, to come up with ideas on the phone, you know, just press a button and talk it, you know, record your, your idea. And then voting was, you know, simple sliders. And, and we built in this, you know, we abstracted a lot of the complexity around conviction and quadratic voting into a really simple interface. But even then, you know, we, we had to, we had to, you know, have, there were some training sessions and sort of lots of back and forth. And, and they helped us evolve the interface. We, we worked collaboratively, collaboratively with them to build the thing. After a while that they really kind of got it and yeah, and, and found it 
they're really easy to use and we're really engaged, you know, because there's a lot of talk in traditional elections around the lack of engagement, lack of, you know, not many people vote in national or, or local elections. But when you've got a hyper local system, people do vote, they are engaged because it directly affects them. Uh, so these are proposals that affected these 15 guys directly. So they that they they went on the app regularly and they they changed their, their voting patterns and, that, and we observed that and we worked closely with them. As, as we went. So generally, it, it went down really well. What age group were these guys in? Yeah, ranged from, I think, 17 to 60. The only reason I ask, I just read a paper that young educated men tend to use Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more than any other age group or gender. What was the Ayamiyaguchi project? So that's another project uh, in, in the similar region in Lower Hutt near, near Wellington. That's That was so kind of the... Well, for a third trial, uh, where it was quite a different focus in that they were existing sort of food hub. They that they were running courses teaching young people how to to grow food food with a sort of a, a, a cultural lens. And so we and we we connected with Aya when she was over here in New Zealand. Uh, she she came across as part of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So. We, we had dinner with her and she was super interested in what we were doing and basically said that she wanted to donate some some of her own personal money, so not the Ethereum Foundation, but her own personal money into one of the projects. And so, yeah, so we basically made the connections and and got that project going. So basically she, she puts you know, a bunch of money into the, the pot where, and this is in this case, it's young people, uh, all ages, all sexes, uh, young people who are making decisions around where the money goes to support that that food planting, that sort of thing. So, so that that project's just just started, uh, and so there's a bunch of young. This is between I think fourteen and twenty-two age range, and yeah, and again, there's details on our website of of that project. But, uh, but yeah, but that, that's going really well. I want to pivot into talking more about the blockchain. And, you know, currently, I, I guess it's not running on the blockchain. And there's a lot of debate about like whether the blockchain is useful or if it's a solution looking for a problem. So do you find that the blockchain is necessary for the well-being protocol? Obviously, this is just the pilot, like the initial projects. Do you think it's necessary for the evolved state of the well-being protocol and why or why not yeah yes yeah. so the answer is yes i think we at the heart of our project is around transparency and and changing the the sort of control and power structures that typically emerge when you create centralized systems now at the moment we've got too much power so we hold the keys to the database and, and we can make decisions so that's we don't want that to be the end state. We want the, that to be taken out of our control, so we can't abuse that control. So, so that's where DAOs and blockchain and decentralization, uh, and ultimately, you know, voting and and resource allocation and money. We want all that to be transparent and auditable. So, yeah, anybody can see what's going on, uh, and that's that's what blockchain does, sort of out of the box. So. We need to get to that that state, uh, but again, we just made the strategic decision, and I, I've been involved in many, many blockchain projects who try to solve the sort of the back end technical problems too early, versus they forget about the sort of user experience 
user interface problems. So we made the decision, okay, we need to solve the user interface problem first. If that doesn't work. There's no point in trying to spend time, you know, deciding which blockchain we're going to use and doing smart contract stuff and blah, blah. But, but what we did do is take on board the, you know, mostly through my sort of background and experience in, in the, in the web three world is to take on board the design patterns that were emerging in blockchain and DAOs and use that when we were designing our essentially a web 2.0 system so that it, it will be relatively easy to, to transition into a full uh, Web3 uh, project later on. I think that is a really smart way to approach DAP building because I, I think a lot of people try to go into the smart contract side of things first. Um, it's very tempting, but it's surprising how much JavaScript and how much Web2 stuff you need to know how to make it like an actual DAP. So I think it is kind of a smart approach to, you know, focus on the UI, focus on the web two stuff, make that really good, and then add like the, you know, bells and whistles at the end. So blockchain and DAO. So the benefit, if I understand correctly, is this transparent that anyone can look up what's happening. People know where their money is going and the locals are also able to vote on what they want to be done and ensure that their vote is like verifiable not tampered with and things like that is anything else that is a big benefit of blockchain in this context i think you got most of it so transparency uh auditability non yeah nobody can can corrupt it in theory once it's on chain those are the main things and i I guess of course once we've yeah we've once solved the user interface problem we've got it on chain we can then scale it but not scale it in a traditional way. So people think of you know a SaaS product and you just start small and grow your database and take over the world, but we want to scale by replication. So we don't want our communities to get bigger and bigger. We want to replicate them. So we want 1,000 communities or 10,000 communities across New Zealand, across, across a country, whatever, all working on their own local problems. And once we've achieved that scale, we can do some really interesting things. One we essentially become this data sensing network uh, and which is gathering data, which is extremely valuable. It's extremely valuable to, to governments or local governments who are trying to make decisions in a certain part of the country where there's lots of proposals coming from the community to you know, about damp houses or mental health, whatever, they they will know that they can potentially target, you know, all the information is anonymized and the community have to allow government access but if they do then yes that, that information is very valuable and can bring income to the community so you create this data sensing network uh, and you can also start to create sort of interactions or interoperability between these sort of cells so it becomes more of a cellular cellular network you know how a body is designed it's you know a body is, is less of a hierarchy it's more of a independent cells working and and with with transmission routes between them so we can sort of design a sort of yeah a more open, transparent, decentralized system. So that that that's that's our end goal. But but I guess the other thing we can do is in the short term is is we can create this kind of system that allows givers, people with money, so that might be government, that might be a rich person, it might be a charity or whatever, to potentially you can imagine them jumping onto a website and going, okay, I want to see all the communities within a, a two-kilometer two radius uh, in the interests like ecology or mental health or whatever, and filter it and bam, up, up pops three communities and I'm two clicks, I can donate 
my crypto or my fiat or my uh or i can stake it i can sort of lend it in and support that community and that might give me certain rights i might be able to sort of i might want to actually physically get involved and, and go and dig the garden up with with the community what we do is trying to, try to like create a connection between the sort of the the real world and and the sort of the crypto web3 world which you know, it's often between people who've never seen each other and don't have any sort of human relationship. Uh, we, we want technology to help support real human relationships, people actually getting together and talking in a room. Uh, we want that to happen. We just want to add a, a layer of fairness and equity around the decision-making process. So you know, the, the stay-at-home parents who can't get to that meeting still have a vote or hasn't got the loudest voice in the room. We just want to make it a bit fairer uh, and more equitable for everybody. When we're talking about voting, you had two things on your website. And for listeners, I want to just, I think it's a good opportunity to explore some scary words, namely quadratic voting and conviction voting. Could you explain how that works? Yes, yes. <laughs> they are quite scary. The quadratic, it's its not quite as scary as it sounds. So essentially, uh, the way quadratic voting works is that everybody well the way we've, we've implemented in our app is that everybody is given a voting credit of 100 100 credits and that essentially voting credits in a, at any point in time there might be three or five proposals in the list of things that you can vote for so it's, it's a system for, for voting on multiple things at the same time essentially prioritizing and allocating resources so if i want to give one vote so a proposal, let's say a proposal to buy two bags of manure, manure for the garden, I can give one vote, that will cost me 10 credits. So my, my total drops down to 90. Okay, But I can vote on up to 10, 10 different projects like that. I could spread my votes out across 10 different projects because I use 10 credits each and I've got a total of 100. But the interesting, the quadratic bit is if I, uh, if I am really passionate about this buy bags of manure project, I can give two votes to it, uh, but that costs me, instead of costing me 20 credits, which you think it might do, it costs me 40. So it goes up quadratically, it's, you square it, the two times two is four. If I want to give it three votes, it costs 90 credits. So, because three times three is nine, so 90. So if I'm really passionate about it, I want to give it all my three votes, it costs me almost all my voting credits. So I can only really be passionate about one one thing. So there's a high cost to, to, to doing that. So that's the way we've implemented quadratic voting. And there's various flavors of that. But essentially, you use this this square math, this formula, so that the cost of, of voting goes exponentially higher the more the more votes you give on to a specific project. So conviction voting does something in addition to that, it introduces a time dampening effect. The, the, the idea is that if I put all my three votes onto a proposal, so I'm really passionate about it, it costs me all my credits, we don't want that credit or that, that votes to go on immediately. We want it to gradually build up over time. So, And we've set it in the maths to half-life of or whatever. We, we can do it on a per-community level, but let's say it's three days. So if I put my three votes on today, in three days, my actual vote will be one and a half. So it gradually climbs up uh, towards the, the, the three votes. So in three days, it'll be one and a half. In six days, it'll be 2.2. .2. In nine days, it'll, it'll gradually 
come up to that three. What it means is that, well, it, it, it overcomes a bunch of problems, things like voter collusion or voter pressure. If people are in a room and they feel pressured to, to vote one way because somebody's sort of forcing them to, it doesn't actually matter because they can put their three votes on in the meeting they can, and it won't have an effect, time damping effect. They can go home and just put the slider back and, and, and come back. So that's one aspect of it. But I guess the more interesting bit is this combination of, of quadratic and conviction voting gives us this mechanism to reduce a fundamental problem of any voting system called the tyranny of the majority. So in any voting system, the majority sort of tends to win by definition. If you can imagine in, in our system where we've got the quadratic and conviction voting running, it's a a group of a minority within our group. Let's say we've got 15 people in our community and there's a minority group of three people. They want to put a proposal that's really important to them as a, as a minority. So you can imagine if they all put their all their three votes on, so three of them, that gives them nine votes. That so gives them quite a lot of votes and they can't vote on anything else, but that's the kind of the, the, the downside. But yeah, they can be passionate about it. And if they hold their vote on there, it, it, it favors them. So conviction voting favors people with long-standing conviction over people who are changing their minds all the time. So this, so if they hold, they put all their votes and they hold it there, that minority is more likely to get their proposal across the line than a system that just had one person, one vote and didn't have that, those sorts of mechanisms going on. It's just a different way of, of capturing sort of group preferences when you've got multiple uh, things to, to vote on. So I hope that made sense. Yeah, I, how I learned about quadratic voting in the past was about a way to prevent super rich or like rich in quotation marks people from having too much power. Yeah. So like the more credits you have doesn't mean like yes it does mean that you have a little bit more power but not so much more power that you just like automatically become a majority. So is that yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's another. Uh, not to be confused with with quadratic funding, which is a kind of a variation on that. So, projects like Gitcoin, which which some of you may have heard of, uses quadratic funding, which is very similar. It's, just, it's the same concept, but it's just just turned on its head a little bit. But essentially, yes, you're right. It, it's often used for that sort of reducing the impact of that extra power because the cost of putting those three votes goes up so much. But it gives less power to the to the to the rich, essentially. Uh, so that that's one one aspect of it. I might actually talk to my professor about it because he might be very interested in studying preferences and optimality. And, yeah. and the next point is about charities and business registration philanthropy. And on our last call, you were talking about how the New Zealand charity system is not as sophisticated as the UK. Well, there's like in the UK, there's some better mechanisms where it makes it easier for businesses to donate to local communities. So I want to talk about that, especially with a focus on is the DAO potentially achieving more efficient results for local um, communities? Do you see that there's like costs involved in the traditional way that you think you think they can be avoided in the DAO? Yeah, okay. So two parts that I think first question about the difference between the UK and, and New Zealand. Uh, yeah, I think just just because of the bigger size of the UK and Europe, uh, 
what we found over there was that there's this quite mature network of it's called participatory grant making. There are companies that specialize in it, groups, and and London is sort of divided into six bits where they've got sort of companies that are doing a lot more community involvement, sort of community decision making projects. So we've kind of tapped into that network and 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 found a lot of interest in what we're doing. And that wasn't really as mature in New Zealand just because it's our population is so small over here. You know, and I think in the US as well, there's a lot of work going on in that participatory whatever. So people become more aware that perhaps the pendulum has swung too far towards centralized organizations making decisions that affect local people. So there's this general feeling that we should perhaps push it back a bit and give more power to the people. So so yeah, so we're kind of tapping into that network. So so we, we would argue that what we've built uh, has a potential to you know, radically change that efficiency thing. So if you think about it currently, our system of of supporting uh, people who perhaps haven't, whatever reason, done well out of the capitalist system. We have we have a system of social welfare, and we have charity, and we have philanthropy that basically involves people in with money and power benevolently giving to people who are without money and power, and it creates dependencies, and it's not good for mental health. And there's lots of you know, well researched evidence around why that's not good, uh, and why it's so much more. So much better if you give people autonomy and and you know, to, to make their own decisions, especially in a group at a community level. So there's lots of really hard research. So what we are saying is, so the system exists currently where you have this sort of hierarchy of of funders, you know, often out of our tax system or big philanthropy that filters down through this hierarchy of of, of charities and and, and, and organisations who, who are doing wonderful work, but it's not a very efficient system. And often these these organisations are competing with each other for the same pots of money, so they have to spend a lot of time, you know, with people who can fill out grant applications. And they're fighting for the same pot of money, blah, blah blah. So it's a very inefficient system. What we're saying is, our app, our technology can cut out all of that and basically create a route directly from funder to local community, and that can be automated. So. You know, your average charity, I think, I think there's figures like, you know, 40 cents in the dollar pops out to actually help the people. You know, the other 60% is is in running the system. So and if you sort of multiply that by, you know, the, all the different layers. So what we're saying is, you know, with our system, potentially, you know, funder, which could be a central government agency, uh, could put money into a thousand pots uh, across the country, and that would instantly go to the community. And so you cut out a lot of that inefficiency. And in fact, you get, we would argue, higher than 100% efficiency because the community will often volunteer and put extra time into projects that, that, that they are involved in making decisions around. So an organization puts $1 in, they might get $1.10 out in value to the community because the community is actually augmenting and putting extra resources that they've generated themselves into, into supporting that thing. So yes, to answer your question, we, we do think we're fundamentally challenging that efficiency status quo. That's incredible. I think that businesses will love this because they know they're getting more for, more for their money and charities will obviously also love this too. So it's a win-win situation. For potential funders watching this, would a DAO be considered like a charity in the New Zealand organizational structure? And would that donation be tax-free? What's the kind of practicality? Good, yeah, good, good good question. And nobody quite knows. Uh, I know it, it's, I mean, as in, as is plagued, the, the whole Web3 world is that it's the, the speed of, 
of, of government and legislation and the lawmaking system is just way behind what's actually happening in the real world. And, you know, when you're dealing with exponential technology growth, uh, the legal system moves a lot slower. So uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Uh, and we, we've spoken to, to various lawyers who specialize this in New Zealand. And yeah, generally the, the, the response is, well, yeah, you can try this, but there's no precedence. You know, you might be all right. But uh, we don't really know yet. So yeah. it, it's a, it's a so it's a we've I guess so we've taken the view in the short term that we've kind of got two identities. We've got the sort of the on chain the moment it's the, the most is safe. It's it's at the treasury where we could potentially collect uh, uh, donation money to help support the project. Uh, but we've also got the a physical charity uh, status through a collective gift collective, so we can. We can. We've got charitable status, which is tax deductible expense. So, if somebody wants to give us real money to support the project or to directly put into a community project, so there's kind of two pots, and we could keep them very transparent and separate. But there's the the pot to sort of support the infrastructure build the project to, to help us grow the team, uh, and then there's the pots, all the little pots for all the little projects that are going on. That as the trials get get, get more and more. So, so potentially somebody could donate to either of those or both. That's the sort of infrastructure structure we're, we're building out and want to make super easy to use. In your ideal world as a founder, would the charity rules move to fit the concept of a DAO or do you think there should be another kind of entity to exist, like a charity DAO? What would you like regulators to do is basically what I'm asking. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really tricky one and, and a controversial one. I mean, I've got a slightly more controversial view that, I mean, blockchain decentralization, it's, it essentially doesn't fit with the, the system we've got. 200 countries around the world with their own legal systems, their own regulations. Uh, the blockchain, by definition, is borderless. It doesn't sort of recognize geopolitical boundaries. I think we need to create new systems to enforce that that they don't go bad and they don't get abused. Uh, and trying to, you know, trying to create law, especially in a small place like New Zealand, the FMA and the, and the tax department for the IRD, you know, people who who know about crypto, it's it's a very small number of people. They've got very limited resources and a lot of other priorities. So I think. It's yeah. It, it's not. It's not going to be perfect, and there's going to be bad things that happen. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's going to happen, and this the Web three world is going to grow, and we need to almost regulate ourselves. If we decentralize properly, then there's a different form of control because all the rules are transparent. The code, the, the treasury, you know, there's bad stuff happening. We can see it in in plain sight. That that doesn't happen in the in traditional system. So. We need to think differently around how we manage risk and how do we stop this stuff from from being abused and people being you know fleeced and uh so yeah so it's, it's a challenging space but uh and i certainly don't have the answers would it be possible like in the meantime because you know i think for new zealand certain new zealand assets and like the stock market and stuff they're only allowed a certain percentage of foreign investment maybe that was for real estate would that be potential like a potential rule to apply like you know new zealand can create a regulation for a charity DAO, and there could be a cap on how much foreign investment there is would that be something like yes realistic? 
Possibly, but again, blockchain Web3 does have this, this problem, which we haven't really solved around identity, uh, because, you know, you can put money into a DAO without showing your identity. So nobody knows who you are or what country you're in. Or, uh, so now you can apply, you know, you can make a rule that says, you know, if you're going to have some sort of legally recognized DAO in New Zealand under New Zealand government, under New Zealand law, you need to go through KYC. You need to actually prove who's doing stuff, who is voting. And, and that's an approach that you know, a lot of DAOs are taking. But then there's a more purist view that says, hey, that's that's not the right thing to do. We should allow an, an anonymity or other blockchain-based identity systems. And there's a bunch of projects that are working currently to solve the sort of identity problem, peer-to-peer -peer identity ver verification, which don't rely on a, a central attestation service. So there's all that going on, but it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's moving quickly and, and there's no, no easy answers. I'm sure you've been talking to Alex Sims. We interviewed her quite a while ago. <laughs> I think she also doesn't know all the answers either, even though she's a super expert. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people uh, trying to make sense of two very system, very different systems and, and working at how we can make them work better together. Moving on. I want to talk a little bit about open source. So is the well-being um, protocol currently open source? Uh, we're not currently, we, but we are going to be. Uh, it's kind of at that point we just need to get a bit more momentum, a bit more scale. We need to sort of get our code better audited and that sort of thing. And then, then once we're ready, we'll, we'll open source everything. Could you explain why it is important to open source projects like this? Yeah, so I guess it's worth saying that. So I mean, when you're on the blockchain, if you're writing smart contracts, they're essentially open source by by default. You know, so everybody can see the rules of the back end, what the business rules at the back end, the kind of the front end, the user interface, which might be an app or a or a website, or whatever. That can be proprietary. That can be, i.e., that only the developer can change it and, and take a copy of it and modify it. Uh, that's that's proprietary software. And that's most of the software we use. We use Microsoft products or Photoshop or whatever. They're examples of proprietary software. They they invest a lot of money building that thing and they own it. They're, they're the only people who can sort of basically yeah, and they basically rent rent it out to you. Uh, the open source sort of philosophy is which pretty much underpins the internet, you know, all the software that the internet's been built on the protocols tcp ip http those sorts of things the email protocols they're all open source protocols an open source project means you can grab a copy of the code websites like github which acts as kind of repositories for all this code so you can go to github and you can download a complete copy of all the lines of code that, that have been written to make this specific project work and then you can copy it and you can make your own version and you can modify it a little bit. But I guess the reason why you might open source something is because, well, ideally you want to encourage people to work on the same project, contribute. You know, if, if it all fragments and everybody just creates their own copy, then probably nobody really wins because they just create millions of copies that are all, you know, being worked on. But ideally people converge onto one main project, like Linux is a classic example. Uh, which sort of underpins a lot of the internet sort of backbone. If people converge on one on one or a small number of projects, then many people working on one project makes it move much quicker and it's much more secure and it's more robust. And so you generally get better quality projects because you've got thousands of people around the world all 
using it and making it better and spotting bugs. Generally, open source aligns with sort of Web3 and uh, blockchain because it is all about transparency. It's about not having those power hierarchies where Facebook or, you know, for example, Facebook or Uber, these are all, you know, closed source, closed source projects where we're essentially you know, serfs on, on Zuckerberg's kingdom that so we're renting to use their world. And that, that gives them a lot of power and we didn't select them. It creates these real problems when they become too powerful. So and that's where blockchain is kind of hopefully stepping in to say, okay, there's an alternative way we can create a, a Facebook without Zuckerberg at the top. We create Uber without, we go as a community, actually, where the taxi drivers own tokens that represent Uber and can make decisions and benefit if Uber does well, or Uber blockchain version. So that's, I think, the exciting bit of, of blockchain. And it's also surprising that you can run a viable business, not that the wellbeing protocol is a business, but you can run a profitable business. I think there's a hard wallet company called Trezor, and their their code is all open source, and they're still making money. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of open source, and I'm excited to see when the wellbeing protocol is open source and use the app and everything. On this journey, just being a founder of of the well-being protocol what are some key professions for like the young listeners listening to this what are some key professions where you're like oh that would be really good or we need more kiwis to be specializing in this field and that field like what do you want to see young people studying and doing so that projects like this can thrive i mean and the obvious one is is coders i mean there's a, there's always been a shortage of coders but i think the blockchain as an industry and, and a technology layer, I mean, it's a bit like the internet. When the internet first started, it was su super nerdy and, and you had to sort of type in long things so you can get onto it. You know, we've now got sophisticated interfaces and we can build on top of that. Uh, so we're now some blockchain infrastructure and a blockchain will, the word will probably just go away after a while. It's more around decentralization, decentralized projects and, and products. And that opens up opportunities for all sorts of people with all sorts of skills and backgrounds from designers to community builders to, you know, to, to whatever. You know, we're always looking for developers. We're always looking for just community builders, people who understand the technology, who can build relationships. I mean, PR, community building, whatever you want to call it, it's about building momentum, getting more people to hear about it and and become evangelists of, of what you're doing yeah because ultimately for us it's you know because you know we're going to open source we've got no ip to protect we're going to be sharing everything the way we're going to succeed is to build you know momentum build you know build a community who, who are aligned with, with with what we're doing i think that's what i'm hearing from you know alex people like alex sims and alison mackie that even just understanding like how blockchain works and understanding basics can get you really far into working with um, decentralized organizations. Yeah, yeah. I think I think understanding the principles, I mean, you can get sucked into sort of getting, you know, super technical and the smart contract side, but understanding the principles of decentralization, understanding how Bitcoin works, how Ethereum at a high level works, just means and, and actually and but actually also playing with it, playing with a DeFi protocol, going onto Uniswap, buying some tokens. Uh, joining a DAO, putting a proposal in, voting on somebody else's proposal, you know, getting your head around MetaMask and wallets. Uh, it doesn't take too long, and there's loads of good resources out there to support you. If you can get to that stage, then yes, you may go deeper after that. You may get on the rabbit hole and spend your whole life in it. Uh, 
but you may also find uh, meaningful work and interests sort of building in that in that ecosystem but not necessarily deep in the, in the tech and, and often yeah i mean you do need to perhaps spend some time on discord channels and and just getting to know people on the, on these sort of online forums and seeing how value aligned they are and see what seeing what they're trying to do but yeah if you, if you persevere it can be you know you, people can you can you certainly earn a living you can you can make new friends you can you can yeah but build a career i mean i'm sure so many listeners we have so many girls that like are interested in blockchain and they're like learning a little bit here and there and just like you know having that kind of validation like you're on the right track don't need to like get super technical but just understand the ideas of blockchain it's, it's really validating to hear from someone who's made an actual organization uh, and i think i think as the industry matures there's greater appreciation that that lack of diversity that is currently there is a problem uh, we need more women involved we need more people of different ethnicities we need yeah, because, you know, we know the research says that better decisions are made when you have that, that diversity. So hopefully that should bring in more opportunities for, for girls, women who want to get into that space. Uh, certainly a couple of DAOs, I won't mention names, but a couple of the big DAOs I've been involved in, that was a fundamental problem that it was dominated from the beginning by young, nerdy North American males. And and that caused problems and, and the decisions weren't yeah, often weren't weren't optimal. Yeah, so hopefully that as the industry matures, there's there's more opportunities and it's a bit more welcoming than it perhaps has been in the past but to women. I hope so too. I I could go on about this, but I have a theory that you know if there were more women, there would be less crypto scams. Um, <laughs> so just like just to wrap up, I have a quick a few quick questions that can be like kind of yes or no answers what are the minimum requirements for being a funder like financially nothing I mean, we're, we're trying to democratize giving ultimately so it could be five dollars but we're not quite there yet i mean we're ultimately we're in the short term we're looking for sort of larger funders who can sort of we can work more closely with to, to fund a community and fund the project and we yeah, so we're currently in a sort of fundraising mode at the moment but but where we want to get to is yeah anybody can say hey Kay, I've got five dollars spare perhaps I want to give five dollars a month to this awesome community around the corner and I want to see what they're doing because everything's transparent all their proposals are transparent blah blah so we just want to make that super easy and what are the requirements for being a community organization yeah so that's one of the things we're trying to disrupt because currently when when you want to get funding at a local level it often means you've got to be some sort of charity or you've got to even you've got to some sort of infrastructure legal infrastructure in place to get that money and you've got to have people who understand grants and, and where to apply blah, blah blah i guess we are saying okay let's let's try and create an alternative system where any group of people so it could be 15 people probably minimum 15 ish but yeah, 15 to a few hundred or thousand or whatever people can come together form a, a community what we call a community which is just a, a group of people who want to do some some good and they write a constitution and potentially attract a funder and, and they're off or, or, they, or they self-fund even yeah so we just want to make that super easy without any legal sort of requirements which which you know is challenging because we're we're sort of fighting the system a little bit but but yeah there's various ways through for us for those who do want to get involved as a funder or community organization what is the best way to do that in beta mode and what's the best way to contact you yeah, just just click me an email, Mark at thewellbeingprotocol.org, uh, or info at thewellbeingprotocol.org, and uh, yeah, 
we'll, we'll get back to you. We're, we're happy to, if you're local, have a coffee or jump on a Zoom or, yeah, they're always keen to, to connect with, with, with community organizations who are interested in running trials and funders who, who want to support, support what we're doing. I can already think of a few good ones in Auckland and Hamilton that might be interested so i'll send this podcast to them they can maybe like have a little play around or see what blockchain can do for them so thank you so much for coming on the crypto girls podcast it's been a pleasure i've actually enjoyed learning about the well-being protocol so much it's uh really enlightening and like in the crypto world it can be a little crazy and um, a lot of money focused people so it's really really enlightening to have a use case that's you know been worked on and i'm really excited i really hope that it's successful thank you it's been great great to be on